You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Welcome to the first episode of the Innovate Strathclyde podcast, brought to you by University of Strathclyde. My name is Amanda Carpenter, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Dr. Chris White, who is a senior lecturer and head of the Centre for Water, Environment, Sustainability and Public Health at the University. Hello, Chris. Hello, Amanda. Chris, this podcast was your idea. Why did you want to do a podcast series and what are you hoping to achieve with the series? Well, with COP26 coming to Glasgow later this year, it presents Glasgow, Scotland and the University of Strathclyde, therefore, with a unique opportunity for us to connect with the wider world around who we are, the the research that we do, and I guess to showcase um, a lot of the innovation and uh, forward thinking and research that, that goes on here at Strathclyde and making that connection to the net zero transition and the move towards a more climate resilient future. I guess the, the idea of the podcast came about as an idea and an opportunity to, to demonstrate uh, who we are, where our place is in, in Glasgow and in Scotland, um, and to connect to the, the people of, uh, of Scotland with, with what we do. It's such an exciting theme, isn't it, to be discussing. We're going to cover so many different subjects over the the podcast series. And you and I are going to be in conversation a lot, which is great. And we've got some fantastic guests lined up. But before we kind of kick off the main programme today, can I ask you a little bit about your work? Because I can see the link between water and public health, you know, which is in that very long job title. But what about the bigger link between water, sustainability and the environment? Yes, it's a good question. I think a lot of the focus at the moment, quite rightly, is on our transition to net zero. But everything is interlinked. We can't have a net zero future unless we also encompass the energy transition, sustainable development, uh, circular economy, climate adaptation. It's all part of that same picture, part of that joined up uh, approach. So uh, a lot of what we're do within the centre, within the university, isn't just around the net zero piece. It's also around all the other interconnected science and innovation and research that connects to that. And that forms in itself a really good introduction to our guests, because we've brought together both energy expertise, but also policymaking and, and dare I say, government expertise today. And we're joined by Raggy Lowe, who's head of heat planning at the Scottish government. Raggy, welcome. And thanks so much for joining us. Hello, I'm very pleased to be here. Can I just ask you, because I don't know, and I guess some other people might not know, what is heat planning? That's a good question. So I I cover a range of things around how we transition our buildings to effectively being zero emissions buildings so that they no longer contribute to climate change by emitting greenhouse gases. And the particular focus I have is around the sort of strategy of how we deliver that, how we do it both at a national level and how we deliver it at a local level in a way that's tailored to local communities' needs. And are those public buildings or does your remit include domestic homes, for example? All buildings, yeah. So buildings is responsible for around 20% of um, emissions. So it's, it's a huge proportion. That's homes that use fossil fuels for heating and non-domestic buildings, including public buildings, you know, schools, hospitals, shopping centres, everything, uh, all buildings. So yeah, we cover we cover the lot. That must be really interesting. And also, I guess you've got a chance to make quite a noticeable, measurable difference, not easily, but relatively quickly, because there are things that we can specifically do to make those buildings less 
energy sapping create fewer emissions. So you've actually got a chance to have a, a direct cause and effect, which in some of the climate change work is not so easy to do because a lot of it's so much more long term, isn't it? Yes. Although I think that the heat transition itself is long term. It's a, a massively complex policy area. We'll maybe come on to chat about this shortly, but it's complex both in sort of how we can regulate and make change happen and, and mandate it um, in terms of who has the authority to do that. It's also massively complex in terms of the actors involved. Obviously, you know, each one of us lives in a home uh, or hopefully uh, some of us are tenants, some of us are homeowners, some of us own our homes outright, some of us move around quite a lot from one home to another. So there's a real diversity there of interests at stake. Uh, and then, as I say, you've, you've also got the non-domestic side of the equation and then connections into all of the bits of the economy that supply heat uh, in various ways to us. So there's a lot to, to kind of grapple with there. Thank you. And that was a lovely segue into our second guest, Professor Keith Bell, who holds the Scottish Power Chair in Smart Grids at the University of Strathclyde and is a member of the Committee on Climate Change. Welcome, Keith, and thanks so much for coming along. Hello, it's lovely to be here. I wonder if we should start perhaps with thinking about what innovation is more generally, because this this whole podcast series is entitled Innovate. But what do we mean when we think about innovation, Keith? What does it mean for you sitting where you do in the university? I think for me, it means fundamentally creativity. So we're trying to come up with new ways of doing things. Maybe actually we're coming up with a new thing to do or not to do for that matter. And it's not, and it's actually, although, you know, we talk a lot about innovative technology and we've seen all, all the sort of benefits from that across society throughout human history, actually, uh, it's also about the ways we do things, processes, methods, business models. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's anything that's sort of original and creative. But of course, not all of these things are necessarily to society's benefit or to individuals' benefit. So, so there's also uh, a need to, I think, a need to be really kind of focused or try to be focused on, on the things that are going to bring benefits to people. And, you know, to, to free up that creative process as well. And to see how we can make use of these ideas and take them forward and, and, you know, like I say, really bring about those benefits. Keith, I wonder if I can follow up a little bit on that, but perhaps with a little bit more of a specific focus on Scotland and perhaps the University of, of Strathclyde. What is it specifically, do you think, about Scotland or the institution where we are? Is it either gives us an advantage or, or certainly a unique place when it comes to technology and, and innovation, do you think? Well, I found it very interesting moving to Scotland from from down south. I mean, you could listen to me. I'm, I'm not. I'm not born and bred Glaswegian, uh, not by any means. But I'm pleased to have been here for well, you know, more than 15 years now. And as an electrical engineer, and coming in and you know, teaching electrical engineering and seeing who our students are, where they're coming from, I've been really pleased to see, in comparison with universities and electrical engineering departments down south, just how many people are wanting to study engineering who have grown up here. That's an actually stark contrast to say I spent some time as a researcher in Manchester, for example, and you know, about half of their undergraduates have come from overseas. I mean, it's a great, they're very welcome, but there seems to be less interest at home. And I kind of wondered why that is. And it maybe it's, and I haven't explored this, um, so I have, I have no evidence to back this up, I'm afraid, but it, I wonder if it is something to do with the sort of the heritage that we have in Scotland you know, there's, there is a history, you know, especially since the Enlightenment of uh, exploring new ideas and especially of, of engineering and of technological progress and of, and of experimentation, uh, yeah, innovation 
that that we're kind of building on, and I, and I think that's that's fantastic. And as an institution, as the University of Strathclyde, when were we founded? 1796. You know, it had this strap line of the place of useful learning. And although, well, you know, in theory, every bit of learning is useful. You know, knowledge and understanding is fundamental to everything, and it's part of what we are as part of the human condition, and it's really important. But but how do we apply it? Where does that learning lead to? I mean, we don't know where it's going to lead to always. It may be some way down the line. It leads to something that is to, you know, tangible societal benefits. But that idea of application of learning, I think, is really important and is, and is something that I think, uh, as I say, Scotland has a history of. And I would like to think, and I think it's true, that the University of Strathclyde has a history of. And, and part of the evidence for that, I think, is some of the linkages that we have with industry, with policymakers, with the sort of people who are going to take the ideas that are developed in in the university and and put them into practice, uh, and you know that's something that that's been really important to me. I came from an, a, a, an industry background myself before I came came to Strathclyde, and I've been really keen to maintain those links, both to understand what the challenges and the problems are, so that I can try and focus what I do and you know share that with with colleagues. So that the work we are doing to kind of address some of those problems has a chance of making a difference. And that's absolutely key when we talk about climate change, isn't it? Because so much of what we need are innovative, you know, really extraordinary, big picture thinking ideas, but also practical applications of those ideas, both into industry and across into government the work that RAG is doing. So, so being able to encapsulate that and use the university as, if you like, the sort of melting pot of ideas that then feeds across into other departments and other parts of Scotland. And hopefully, you know, we all know education is the greatest Scottish export, so other parts of the world. It's absolutely crucial, isn't it, into our coming to some forms of solutions around climate change. Absolutely. And, and you're totally right to mention the people there. Although, you know, say, as as a university, we we get as a, like every university, we get assessed in terms of our research output every every five years or something, and we're going through that process right now. Uh, in many ways, the most important output from a university is the people. Uh, so the people that we're educating, the researchers, and the ideas that they're developing, the way they're developing their own creativity, I think going out into society. Some 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 people will stay in the university and become academics, but most will go out into uh, you know, the, the rest of the world, take their knowledge into industry, just take it into their everyday life. That, that's, that's, you know, it's, and it's fantastic to see the people who do emerge and how they progress. You know, that's one of the great, greatest things I've enjoyed most about being an academic is meeting some of our graduates later on and seeing how they're doing in their careers and the differences that, that they're making. And in terms of everything being kind of transformative, I mean, we are looking to massive transformation in the way we do things. We need these transformations to happen across the whole world. And it, and it is a massive challenge. But at the same time, I don't think we should forget that this is a really positive thing, actually. Uh, it's going to enable a lot, of, a lot of good things. Of course, it's going to avoid a lot of the kind of adverse impacts that, are, that would happen from climate change. Some of them, unfortunately, are already baked in and, and we're going to have to face. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, much cleaner air, maybe kind of, uh, you know, better diets, we can kind of spread out these benefits across to many people, you know, across other parts of the world, you know, cleaner ways of cooking, for example, getting access to, to energy to, to communicate and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of benefits, even though there are a lot of challenges. But we also, I don't think we should be kind of, and this, you know, it's going to sound strange for a technologist or someone whose job is engineering, 
I don't think we should be absolutely dependent on technological progress to get to where we need to get to. And certainly I think uh, the, the Climate Change Committee in its advice on net zero and the sixth carbon budget that was published just before December was uh, very careful to see, are these targets credible and achievable with the technologies that we already have to hand? I mean, some of them perhaps need to be applied in a new way or, or at scale in a way that we haven't done before. But we can envisage what those technologies are and the things that we need to do to, to make them happen. You know, so there's a certain amount of development and demonstration work to be done. We're not looking for magic bullets or unicorns or, or, or something like that. And I suppose another thing to kind of always keep in mind is, is, again, it's not just a dependency on technology. It's also about societal change. And so some of what Raggy was saying about, you know, heating in buildings, that, that kind of, I think, um, exemplifies that very well. A lot of the kind of improvements that we've seen, the progress that we've seen in the UK and in Scotland in particular, on reducing emissions, greenhouse gas emissions to date, have come about through changes to the energy system. But that's been mostly on the supply side in the way that we produce energy, and especially in the way we produce electricity. Now, that has had a financial cost, but that in turn has helped to dramatically bring down the cost of renewable energy. So that's really cheap now, although it wasn't at the beginning. And we've still got some of those early costs to pay. So our bills are maybe a little bit higher than they would have been. But that transition has happened almost without us noticing. We've still kept the lights on. You know, my colleagues in, in the, you know, the system operator and the network companies are you know, still doing the, pretty much the job that they've always done. We have a reliable supply. So it's not adversely impacted on us. But when we start to go into buildings and change heating systems, people are going to notice it is going to have an impact. And then we have to learn how to use those new types of heating system. When we're moving around, we have to, well, I hope we'll be kind of able to, uh, to do much more walking and cycling. Some of us are getting used to working from home, though not everybody has that opportunity and it has some sort of pros and cons. But I hope we will go back to using public transport. But if we do need to use a car, We'll be using an electric vehicle and get, getting used to how to how to do that. You know the kind of charging patterns that we need to kind of get into. So societal change is an important part of it. Just how our own everyday choices and actions plays a part in it. And and you know if we can keep this sort of momentum that's been starting to be built up over the last couple of years. Okay, the pandemic has had a big impact on everybody's lives, but hopefully it also highlights the need for us to to be kind of pre prepared and to look ahead to the future then we can bring people with us and, and we can sort of learn how to do things in, in, these, in these different ways. So it's really innovation in, in thinking and approach as much as innovation in new solutions and technology. And Raggy, as somebody who escaped from the university and went out into the real world, the role that you have in making some of the things that Keith just described happen is absolutely crucial, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Um, and there are many others with, with roles that are also absolutely crucial. But yes, and I really would endorse Keith's earlier point about innovation as creativity and that it goes way beyond technological innovation. It goes into innovation around how we finance projects. It goes into innovating around how we design policy, including the processes by which we decide to take certain actions. So whether that's you know, more participatory approaches to designing policy that then will land better with people and, and are more kind of resonant with, with the way that they want things to be. So we need innovation across a whole range of different ways in which we 
behave as as people right across society and and in government and in policy making so yeah i i definitely think innovation is a sort of systems thing and not something that's just about technology uh, although that is really important it's a good point raggy about it you know the systems thing so we, we have to think about all the interactions and interconnections what sort of impacts happen but at the same time i don't think we want to be kind of too frightened to have an idea and to try it out uh, but it's very difficult to just to kind of click your fingers and call upon creativity and you know ideas that are going to go somewhere so it's really important i think to create the right environment in which this kind of creativity can flourish and i think this is where you know our universities are so important to provide the kind of space uh, and the ways for people to kind of bounce ideas off each other and, and all of that kind of thing and, and uh, yeah, it's up to all of us to, to create that sort of environment that we can make use of as, as kind of old lags like myself, you know, kind of pale, male and stale somewhat. Yes, we're still involved in the learning process and the creative process, but to make sure we kind of create that space for the younger researchers and our students to kind of really get involved in this and, and em embrace the opportunity. I would just add also, we need to be willing to make mistakes and, and to learn from them quickly. I suppose the, the urgency of the global climate emergency means that we do have to take some risks because we have to do stuff now. And that means we have to iterate, we have to test things out and be prepared for the, some of them not to work and then to move on quickly, learning the lessons. Uh, and, and that is a particular kind of mindset as well. And, and not, if I'm being candid, not something that I guess bureaucrats have traditionally and in the sort of public consciousness been very good at. So, you know, we as policymakers also need to to have that more innovative mindset to um, to really kind of crack the whip and uh, and get stuff done at the pace that it needs to be done. I guess just to sort of follow up a little bit on, on that, a lot of our thinking, whether it's innovation focused, whether it's behavioural focused, tends to be quite siloed in its thinking. And I just wonder whether, and pass this question for, for Raggy in particular, is have we got an opportunity in Scotland with our devolved administration? Does that present actually opportunities that perhaps other parts of the UK don't have in terms of our ability to think slightly outside of the box or, or definitely think differently to perhaps how, how we have in the past? Probably two things I'd reflect on in, in response to that. One is that we have got our own Scottish climate change targets and a set of commitments to a just transition, meaning one that is fair and for which the, the benefits and the, and the burden are kind of equitably distributed. And those, those are particular commitments of the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government. And I think although they are extremely challenging in many respects in terms of how we're actually going to deliver against those. They do present an opportunity for that kind of policy innovation that I was talking about earlier, I think. So that's a really key part of the picture here. Um, and I suppose the, the other thing I'd highlight is, is the way in which, as a Scottish government, we are trying to do joined up policymaking. I mean, it's the, the kind of holy grail, as it were, and, and uh, longstanding ambition of, of all governments. But I think we're, we're genuinely trying to see the interactions between socioeconomic change and social justice and climate change and the move towards net zero, a just transition, how we transition away from high polluting industries and really grow the, the green economy, a green recovery from the COVID pandemic. Uh, all of those things are interconnected and we have a very kind of, I guess, honest approach to to how interconnected and how challenging uh, that interconnectedness is, but a real commitment to to delivering against all of those things at the same time. So it's it's not easy, but the intent is there. And I think, we're, you know, we're, we're making we're making good progress, I think. 
Raggy, with the COVID-19, which of course is still very much part of our, our, our present lives, do you think there's a lot that we can learn from our recent experience, our current experiences, in fact, that we can translate to how we as a government, as a research institution, is uh, approaching the climate emergency and I guess our response in the coming decades? I think for me that the key lesson, if you like, is about what happens when we really mobilise ingenuity and resource behind something. What we've achieved, both in the sort of science sense, but also socially, is unprecedented and really impressive. And there are lots of ways in which we can reflect on how we managed to make that happen and apply it, I think, to the net zero and climate challenge. I mean, I suppose the, the urgency of the, the global climate emergency is a slightly different beast to COVID-19. It's, it's much less present um, in people's sort of day-to-day experience, and it presents a sort of less imminent threat to life, frankly, certainly in, in Scotland. But nevertheless, I think there are things around that kind of mobilising that ingenuity, thinking about how we link together research institutions, science generally, with policymaking, with industry, with other economic actors, with with markets, to, to really innovate at the edges, I suppose, just picking up some of the things that Keith talked about earlier on, to be creative and think about what haven't we tried before that we could try? Um, how could we do it in a safe space, do it fast? And I, I think there are a huge number of lessons from dealing with the, the COVID pandemic that we can take forward. I think I would just say that, you know, it's really highlighted the importance of preparedness. And I think it's fantastic the way so many people have responded. And I think especially of a lot of the scientists involved in in the in the medical research and uh, the development of vaccines and so on and people trying to, trying to track what's going on you know the data analysis that's happening there you know they worked incredibly hard people have refocused their their research kind of attention uh, these are kind of things that are beyond me you know and uh, you know it's brilliant but they weren't starting in a vacuum you know there's been years of investment in developing the knowledge and understanding for example, you know, the platforms that have been used to get these vaccines out uh, so quickly. So I don't know, what is it, the mRNA kind of work uh, that's gone on in a few places uh, and the, you know, the work at University of Oxford, for example, is it kind of using this adenovirus platform, you know, for kind of this kind of flexible thing. So, um, you know, that's, that's a product of investment in research over a number of years. And for me as an energy system person, there's a kind of similar thing. We've got to be, be prepared both the kind of the work that is needed to reduce emissions over a period of time and also for the impact that climate change is going to have anyway. So, you know, the kind of capital stock that we're investing in, whether it's uh, overhead lines, which nobody likes, but I think are great, and, you know, whatever thermal ratings they're going to have because, you know, average temperatures are going to be higher, to buildings, which both have to be designed to be well insulated so you can make efficient use of energy on cold days, but also well ventilated and cooled so that you don't overheat on hot days. And those hot days are going to get hotter and are going to be hotter than we've ever seen before. So we've got to put those things in place now, ready to be adapted to the different circumstances that we're going to, we're going to face, face in future. That's an element of long-term thinking and long-term planning that I think universities are really good at, but sometimes governments fall short of. Just something you said, Raggy, sparked something in my mind, because was earlier you were talking about some of the challenges around heat planning and getting people to think differently about buildings and that you've implied there's quite a lot of work to be done. But one of the, the tropes, I suppose, coming out of the pandemic has been that how communities banded together, communities became more engaged. What are some of the sorts of things you're doing 
to build on that community engagement and help really raise the profile of what you're doing and get people to understand why what you're doing is so important and how they can benefit from it. At a wider level, I would say, um, in terms of climate change and, and climate mitigation generally, there is, in fact, just I think last week, a new Scottish Government public awareness raising campaign to, to help people to understand what the net zero transition actually means for them in, in their lives. So at that sort of wider societal level, I guess, we're, we're doing that sort of awareness raising to, to bring it to life for people a bit. In terms of buildings and helping people to work through the changes that will be needed in their homes, we have a number of programmes, including advice, loans and grants that help people to, to make the transition. But we do, we do face a kind of a lack of awareness, I suppose. I mean, many people would probably be quite shocked to hear that their home is having an, you know, their heating system is having an impact on climate change. People, I think, tend to now understand um, that flying has emissions associated with it, that, you know, some red meat production is is uh, unsustainable and so on, but but not necessarily that their boiler is is a problem. So I think we do we do have a bit of a hill to climb on that uh, just to help people understand better. But we are putting in place, as I say, support that helps people once they've taken that decision and when, when they're at the right point to actually make the transition to convert their heating system to a zero emissions one, to insulate their home, to, to reduce their bills and, and make their home greener. But yeah, we, we, there's still... There's still, I guess this is my recurring theme. There's still a way to go. We, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. There are lots of communities that are, are well engaged on, on all of this. Lots of community groups are doing some fantastic work all across Scotland. But we need to grow from those seeds uh, a whole kind of field of, of activity. And I guess hosting COP in Glasgow is going to help that in some way, isn't it? It will raise the profile of some of these issues, both you know internationally, obviously, but also to your local audience in Glasgow and across Scotland. That has to be a benefit, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I mean there's a fantastic momentum behind COP in Scotland. A huge number of, of people thinking about how they can use it to create a legacy as well. So not just about the sort of the moment of COP, but what happens afterwards? How do we really build on the fact that COP is coming to Scotland? Um, to accelerate the transition, to support communities better, to export Scottish ingenuity uh, on net zero and so on. So that, yeah, there's a, a massive amount of momentum. It's it's really, really encouraging, really positive. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. There's lots of opportunity and the legacy. I think it's not just one event. It comes, you know, circus comes to town and then disappears again. We hope that there's going to be agreement on serious action by governments all around the world. And then we've got to take that serious action that, that what government might make some decisions, but actually it's going to be people, businesses, individuals who are going to have to implement a lot of that. And if we hope there isn't kind of any kind of failure, but it, even if the agreements aren't what we quite hope for, I think in this country, we've still got to do our bits. We've still got that responsibility. So, so we've still got to make sure that that action is carried, is carried forward. And, uh, and yeah, we've got a lot to, to, to build on and to kind of uh, be proud of, I think, in, in Scotland, you know, exporting that know-how. And we've had fantastic innovation over many years in the, in the wind industry. Okay, we, maybe we don't have all of the kind of main big manufacturers that we would have liked to have had. But there's a lot of innovation coming out in terms of, you know, the ways of doing the operation and maintenance of, of wind farms, of, of how you plan and operate an electricity system that's got lots of this variable, quite uncertain resource, you know, wind power, uh, how you make sure that thing, you know, the whole system remains stable and reliable, how we kind of minimize the whole overall cost of that. 
work going on to do with you know, different ways of controlling it and you know, minimizing the kind of local impacts as well, kind of citing things in the right way, maximizing the utilization of the resources, and then and in novel designs of turbines and you know floating wind is, is a thing that you know colleagues at Strathclyde are working very hard on. So that takes us out into deeper seas and making more use of the resources that are available there. So uh, yeah, yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of that ingenuity to be built upon and extended and, and, and exported, I think. And, and I think actually that there's a couple of nice connections back there, Keith, to some of the earlier topics, which were A, around our students and our younger generations, that they are the ones that are, are going to be impacted and, and are continuing to be impacted by climate change, but of course are also going to be part of that solution. They're going to be part of the innovators and behavioral change researchers that are going to instigate the change that's going to be needed over, over the, the coming years. And, and just that last point you mentioned there around offshore floating wind, as we transition to a net zero environment, the other side of that is, of course, everything needs to still be resilient and needs to be robust to cope with the changing climate that is inevitable. That, that words are baked in. We, we have baked in climate change that's, that is happening, is going to continue to happen. So whilst the focus at the moment is quite rightly is, is on our transition, it has to be coupled, of course, with that building of resilience into our existing infrastructure and our new and planned infrastructure that's, that's going to be needed over the coming decades. Chris, I think it's really interesting because we started this conversation with you saying that everything was was interlinked. And I think that we've just really clearly shown that the small actions we can take as individuals, you know, the sorts of things Raggy was describing, possibly being able to change our home heating system, which would have a dramatic impact if we all did that, along with those really big picture things like changing infrastructure, changing the power grid, changing the sources of energy that come into our homes in the first place. It's a really complex but totally interconnected solution that we need to develop, isn't it? And I think that that's why this is so exciting and why it's so challenging, but why it's so important that we've got innovation at the heart of this, because even the small actions that a student working on a small research project, perhaps just for you know their first degree, could have a dramatic impact on the changes that we come, you know, that we might find in the end and the impact could go across the world. So it's, it's amazing how all of this stuff just connects in this incredibly complex, but holistic sort of way. So given that we've just, we've also talked about COP and the importance of COP to both the university, but more importantly to Scotland and to Glasgow, can I ask you all what your kind of, I guess, plea or wish would be coming out of COP? I mean, Keith, you've touched a little bit on what you think some of the opportunities are. Raggy, if you had, you know, the COP leaders in the room captive, what would you be asking of them? I think the global agreement side of things, the, the intergovernmental agreement is really important and we shouldn't ever downplay that. It's massively important. But to pick up a point that Keith made earlier, I think it's also really important that COP acts as a kind of a touchstone and a, a catalyst for a range of things and deliverable commitments with real resource put behind them by a whole range of businesses and communities and civil society organizations and indeed universities. So I, I think it's both of those things that I would I would be looking for. I think it's a huge opportunity to put in place very kind of credible, well thought through and well backed up resourced plans that then actually are delivered right across sectors from from energy, but also into you know agricultural land use and into business and finance um, and so on. So yeah, maybe that's that's quite a lot of asks rather than one. I think actually, Amanda, I'm sorry, I've, I've dumped that's a whole okay. load of stuff in there. <laughs> I think a lot of asks is fine, and I think it's time we yes. did ask because you know we have got the global leaders together. We need to, to push that agenda. 
Keith, have you got any additional asks? I mean, you touched on accepting that they might not get it all right, but. Well, they might not. Of course, we hope they do. And you know, it's so important that they, they meet together. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about whether that could happen virtually. But uh, to hear a perspectives from all around the world, and that's important for all of us, I think, to realise what the impacts of climate change would be if we don't take action to mitigate it. You know, where it's, you know, it's, it's a global society, really. And, and we've got to be aware of that. And as I say, all these leaders coming, coming to, to Glasgow ought to help us to see that and to hear, listen to the things that they're telling us, really, as well as for the other leaders to listen to, well, all of them to listen to each other and sign up to these agreements, you know, make these commitments to the action that is necessary. You know, we haven't had all of the nationally determined contributions yet that we're looking for. Not all of them are as stretching as they need to be in order to keep to the Paris commitment of, you know, try and limit global climate change to significantly below two degrees C. We're already, you know, things are already happening, which make one and a half degrees very difficult to achieve, but we've got to strive towards that. But, uh, you know, the, I mean, policymakers don't exist in a vacuum, of course. And in many countries, they're subject to a democratic process, not all countries, but anyway, they're still, you know, be conscious of what people are wanting. So, so we've got to ask them for the things that are necessary to deal with, with, with climate change and actually the broader sustainable development goals as well, even though the legal process itself won't be so concerned, I suppose, immediately with, with the, these wider goals. Remind leaders that this matters to all of us and we want to see these things happen. And then I think for me as an energy system researcher and, you know, I'm part of a community of, of researchers at the university and collaborators at other places as well. The creativity that we talked about earlier can help to achieve these things. These goals are achievable. They are difficult, but we can do it. And I think we need to sort of uh, embrace it and trust ourselves to do it, back ourselves to do it and give ourselves the kind of opportunity and resources to do it. Absolutely. Completely agree. Chris, have you got any kind of, you know, your cop wish list is probably huge, but... Legacy is the thing that, that that I'm actually most interested in and wanting from COP26. We've touched on that in, in several ways here. It's the legacy for our younger generation, for our students, not just Strathclyde, of course, but students in, in general. It's the younger generation that are going to be impacted the most, but also have the most to offer in, over the coming decades. I really hope that uh, aside from the agreements that, that are reached and the spin-off that will come from those, I, I just hope that that we have a lasting legacy that we'll see in Glasgow, across Scotland, and, and, and of course, much wider, that we can really build on and, and take that forward. And again, thinking back to that piece around everything being interlinked, not just around that technology and uh, net zero transition, but thinking holistically around how we better use uh, and, and deal with our environment in a more sustainable, more equitable way, how we address the levelling up agenda and that just transition, how we build in climate resilience, preparedness, as we spoke about earlier, how that taps into adaptation building. I'd like to see that holistic legacy coming out of COP26. Fantastic point at which to end. Thank you, Chris. And I think you've also just previewed a little bit of some of the other subjects we're going to talk about in the programmes to come. So we should draw it to a close. And on your behalf, can I offer huge thanks to our guests, to Raggy and Keith. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a fascinating discussion. 
Thanks. And it's been great to be here. Yeah, thank, thanks very much uh, for the opportunity. And yeah, look for, I look forward to hearing the rest of the series. Thank you. The next episode is going to be on uh, empowering change. So it's about energy transitions. So we're going to do a bit more of a deep dive in, into that topic. And of course, that's very much the space that both the guests on, on this podcast work in and connected to. So we're going to do a, a deeper look at the energy side of our net zero transition in our next episode. Thanks, Chris. That's really helpful. And on that note, listeners, why not subscribe to the Innovate Strathclyde podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and then the next episode will automatically just drop in for you to hear when it's there. Thanks, everyone. And goodbye. And thanks for listening.